You know, it's amazing how, um, I don't know if you know this, spirituality is a real big thing these days. A lot of people are spiritual, and a lot of people love Jesus, and a lot of people don't even know who he is, really. What's amazing is how biblically illiterate or ignorant much of our American culture is. We just don't know that much. We think we do, and then what happens is, oh, Jesus, yeah, I really love him, and we make him into our coach or our therapist. Jesus becomes, you know, that revolutionary. Jesus becomes whatever I want him to be in my life. We project on him all the good things that we think should be, but we haven't really encountered the real Jesus. We haven't met him simply and profoundly as he is. The irony is the more that you shape Jesus into what you want him to be, a Jesus of your own making or your own projection, that's the Jesus that can't really change you or transform you or make a difference for you. It's just you. All he'll do is confirm everything that you already believe, already you want, everything that you desire, all your wish, dream, fulfillment. And Christianity is so different than all. Most world religions kind of start with humanity and then project off onto God what we need because we know that we're inadequate. But Christianity and the Gospel of Mark and the Gospel itself kind of goes the opposite direction. It's where God sees what humanity needs and enters into human history in the person of Jesus Christ. And we're going to meet him today in the Gospel of Mark because when you do encounter Jesus simply for who he is, what he has done, what he says, how he lives, as we see in the Gospel of Mark, then you're going to see a transformation in your life. And Mark, I think, of all the four Gospels, might be the best place to start. I don't know if you know this, but it's probably, most scholars believe it's the first Gospel written. It's the shortest of the four Gospels. It's very simple language in some ways. And um, you don't really, what's amazing, now I'm not denigrating any of the other Gospels, okay? <laughs> no, not by any means. But Mark, what you get in Mark is simply Jesus. You don't even get a lot of teaching by Jesus, and you don't get much teaching about Jesus. You don't get a lot of theologizing, in a sense, of Jesus. Mark doesn't, uh, you know, go off on his own. He just presents Jesus simply and profoundly and pretty raw and upfront and in your face at times. And that's kind of the amazing thing about this gospel. And we're going to, as we follow along I um, in this series, and we're going to probably take breaks in this series because to get through the whole gospel of Mark, it's going to take a while. And so we'll take a break like after Easter maybe, and go to some, another series and come back for it for the summer and slowly work our way through the entire Gospel of Mark, okay? So I don't want to like do the Gospel of Mark for the next six months. Not that, that it wouldn't be good, but I have a feeling we're going to want a little variety in the topical kind of interest. But we're going to do the Gospel of Mark at least through Easter, if not farther, okay? So we get uh, kind of Mark taking us immediately, like just bluntly, here's Jesus, boom, and we were just in a breakneck speed through this gospel going from one event to another. The crowds and people around him and even his disciples are asking questions and they're not being answered. It's like, well, who is this? 
Why is he doing this? Why does he eat with sinners and tax collectors? Why is he forgiving sins like this? Who is that that can do these things? And we don't get answers. We just get simply Jesus presented to us again and again. But we end up then ruminating, kind of simmering on these things, allowing it to kind of sink in and go like, who is this Jesus? We do some theologizing in a sense to respond to the simple presentation we get in the Gospel of Mark. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make, straight, make his paths straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all of Jerusalem were going out to meet him and were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So from this text today, we're going to look at three things, simply but profoundly, what Mark, I think, is getting at in this text. Uh, no sermon does justice to any of God's word. I mean, there's so much more that you could share, but we're going to look at these three points today. First of all, A, presenting Jesus, who he is. John talks about that, and then discovering Jesus, where he meets you. And finally, the cross of Jesus, where he's going already from the beginning. Okay? So presenting Jesus. And this starts out, this gospel starts up bluntly. It's just the beginning of the gospel. The good news of Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. Boom, the first scene, you think, wow, Messiah, Son of God, where is this going to take place? And we are out in the wilderness. We read this text from Mark that he quotes the prophet Isaiah. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. You might read it and go like, oh, that's nice. This text is a bombshell. Boom, that just exploded in front of every first century Jew that would read this text, every Roman, every citizen of that first century. Like, what? You see, you might look at it and go like, um, why is this a big deal, this passage? Because Mark is saying that Isaiah's prophecy 700 years before, where Isaiah was giving comfort to the exiles of Jerusalem that were now in Babylon, that one day the Lord himself will come, prepare the way of the Lord, and there will be a messenger who will speak and prepare that way. And Mark is saying that messenger is here. His name is John. And the one he prepares for is Jesus, and he is the Lord. Now that word Lord there, you might go like, oh, that's nice. That's a great title. It's not saying sir. It's not saying mister. It's not saying um, your holiness or your reverence or your king even. The word Lord in the original text of Isaiah chapter 40, where this comes from, is the word Yahweh. It is Yahweh. 
God himself who's going to show up and show his glory to his people, Israel. That is the Yahweh, that word, that name of God, the proper name of God that Moses heard about at the burning bush. The God who would rescue his people from Israel from Egypt and bring them to the promised land, the God who covenanted with his people and called them his very own, the God who had called Abraham and through Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and his whole people, that God himself would come to be with his people. And now we hear that's Jesus. It's a bombshell. Boom, because that kind of blows away every human philosophizing that we can do, any theorizing we've ever done. I don't know if you know, you know, if you've studied, any of you, like we've got one, maybe two students here this morning. It's spring break, by the way. Thank you, Jesus. <laughs> I can catch up on grading. <laughs> spring break, right? You having a good spring break so far? Fedney, yeah, I know you got to work. Yeah. What do Floridian students do for spring break? They go home, <laughs> you know? Why go to the beach? We always go to the beach, you know, <laughs> right? Or some are taking um, exams, right? Yeah, well, too hot to do. It's not too hot. This is the beautiful time in the summer. This is spring break. OK. So. Um, where was I now? <laughs> the personal name of God. So philosophizing, any of you like taking a philosophy class ever in school, college? Yeah, yeah. It's basically, philosophy has been, the history of philosophy has been a debate between um, the idealism and realism schools. The schools of, um, you know, focusing on the one or the many, the universal or the particular. The postmodern versus the modern, the the um, just different different schools that are kind of debating back and forth, and how do these things come together, and what are we supposed to think about them, and what we find out in Jesus Christ now, He's kind of the end all and be all. He is the ideal who has become real. He's the universal that has become particular. He is the infinite God who has now become a finite person. He becomes the end all and be all. He is the one who seems unapproachable has now become one you can embrace. The impossible has become possible. And what's fascinating is not even in philosophy, but in religious circles, Eastern faiths tend to look at divinity as an impersonal force that kind of flows through everything, kind of like the force in Star Wars. Or like that you have a divine spark within yourself that's connected to the divinity, the spirituality of the universe, and the material world itself is kind of an illusion that you have to escape from. And unlike that, then you have Judaism and Islam and other faiths that say God is personal, God is separate, God created the world, but he is so wholly other and transcendent you can never approach him and he can never really approach you. In fact, there is no intermediaries in between. He is so wholly other and so wholly different. The likelihood, the only thing you can do is hear a little of his words and try to follow his commands, but you have no idea who he is behind the scenes. And here we now have in Christianity where God who is transcendent and wholly other 
becomes holy, bone of our bone and flesh of our flesh in Jesus Christ. So close to us, he, no one is closer. I'm not even close. I don't know myself as well as Jesus knows me. Isn't that profound? And God is not limited, Christianity would say, and Mark would proclaim, by what limits we might put on him. The infinite has chosen to become finite in Jesus, blowing away every category that we've ever thought of, all because of love. Not just because it's possible, not because it would be nice, but because he so loves this very world that he created. Now, Mark doesn't do a lot of this theologizing that I've just done in this text. He just presents Jesus being Yahweh, the Lord, the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. But other theologians of the New Testament and apostles like Paul do kind of contemplate some of that reality. So for instance, in Colossians, Paul will write that he, that is Jesus, is before all things and in him all things hold together. That now we see that he is the end all and be all. And then he goes on to say, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace through the blood of the cross. Now, you might, I don't know where you're quote at, but I know other people, if I would talk like this in a university setting, there would be some people probably would say, wow, I guess Mark believed that and Paul believed that in that first century. You know, they were primitive people very superstitious, but I'm kind of a scientific, rational mind. This doesn't make any sense. How could I believe that? It might have been a lot easier for them to believe. Actually, that's kind of chronological snobbery, by the way, you know. We are so much more sophisticated these days. Those people were so primitive. The truth is, some of the greatest thinkers of all time are, <laughs> are ancient ones. My brain is like that compared to some of these people. Um, the truth is, for first century Jews in Israel at the time, in Judea at the time, the concept or the teaching that the transcendent God would become human was more difficult for them to believe. They had more cultural and religious biases against that than we do. I don't know if you realize that. Because for first century Jews, this is true for this day. They would not even speak that name, Yahweh. They came up with alternatives to say God's name, like Adonai, in order to not mispronounce or misuse that name in any way because they were afraid that their human lips would defile it and break the first, second, or third commandments. You know, using God's name in vain. They would never make an image of God in any form. They would never put anything, anyone, anything close to the same category as God. Not at all. Angels were not, were, uh, they, they were not intermediaries in the sense of other than just kind of servants of the Lord. They were not like things to be worshipped or honored in any form. And no human being could ever, ever be given any divine honor or glory and you'd never say any human being was 
the Lord, Yahweh. And yet, what Mark is saying here at the beginning, and what you will see at the end of this gospel, is the first century disciples of Jesus who were in that environment, who never saw any possibility, will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So what happened? And Mark would say, hold on to that. That's what this whole story is about. <laughs> Just follow along. And you start, when you are presented simply Jesus, you start realizing who he is. Like, who can do this? Who's doing that? Why is he doing this? Where is he going? And what is he about? So don't just consider the fact that this might be uh, difficult for any rational, scientific, 21st century, modern person to believe. This has been difficult for anyone to believe at any given time, especially the disciples. But I want to answer one other question that you might not even thought about. Why is this even important? Why is the idea that God becomes human even an important thing? What difference does it make? Big deal. And I think there are at least three, um, three reasons that will really kind of bring about a change for you and for me. First of all, <clears throat> God becoming human will change your motivation or has the possibility of really changing your motivation. Now, um, what, tell me, what do you think drives most people? What, what gets them out of bed in the morning? Money. Anything else? Enjoyment. Purpose. Success. Love. So um, I think there's something even more primitive than that. Those things are there. Oh, hunger. hunger. <laughs> um, so uh, I remember my wife did a presentation a long time ago and used this quote, I think, from Christopher McDougall in his book about running. And it's this, every morning in Africa, a gazelle wakes up. It knows it must outrun the fastest lion or it will be killed. Every morning in Africa, a lion wakes up. It knows it must run faster than the slowest gazelle, or it will starve. It doesn't matter whether you're the lion or the gazelle. When the sun comes up, you'd better be running. <laughs> Don't you love that? <laughs> now, he used it for the sake of how running is so great. I think this is the motivation. It's called the fear of death. <laughs> and you might go like, oh my gosh, yeah. Um, it's the fear of missing out, FOMO. Have you ever heard of FOMO? Fear of missing out. The fear of loss, the fear of what other people think, the fear of this, the fear of that, the fear of bad grades, the fear of, oh my gosh, will I pass those exams? I have worked all my life to get these exams finished, right, Mackenzie? Or Kenzie, excuse me. And if I don't, oh my gosh, what's going to happen, right? There's a little fear involved, and there's some motivation to that. Sorry, I'm not trying to raise your anxiety. OK, you're going to be fine. You got your act together, girl. OK, no problem. But the idea is that fear motivates most. And guess what? Religions of this world kind of aggravate that fear. They play with it. So do politicians, by the way. Have you noticed politicians? Yeah, they use fear. They use fear to justify all sorts of things and how they're the savior then that's going to solve your fear problems, right? 
Religion tends to do that and say, oh, yeah, you're afraid of you know, death. You're afraid that you might not measure up to the divine whatever. Well, here's the Eightfold Path. Follow this in Buddhism, and you'll get there, maybe. You know, the problem is in Buddhism, um, there's a lot of great techniques. To, I mean, it's good for techniques, and it's good for um, you know, maybe kind of understanding how we're attached to things, et cetera. But in the end, Buddha, his last words at age 80 when he was dying, said to his disciples, keep on striving. That was his last words. That is, keep working at it. You might get there. Might. Hmm. Or for instance, in uh, Confucianism, just, fel uh, just filial piety, follow that path. And as long as you're honoring others, maybe you are good enough to enter into a good life afterwards. Judaism says the Ten Commandments. Islam says total submission to God and following the pillars of Islam. But in all these, you still wonder, am I good enough? Have I done enough? Have I solved enough? Have I studied enough? Have I learned enough? Have I um, been selfless enough? Have I given enough? And what's absolutely fascinating to me is, for example, in Islam, and I talked to an Islamic um, imam, uh, he shared the fact that nobody knows. Nobody can, Muhammad didn't even know what would happen to him. You know, literally, in Islam, your life is in the balance scales in the end. And th whether you've done a lot of good things or not, you never know if it's been good enough. And God can tip the scales on either side. He's totally free and totally arbitrary, potentially. And you can't complain about it. You have no idea. Fear and anxiety. Religion exacerbates it, uses it. But if God has come in human form. He's stating, you'll never be good enough. I know you need rescue. I love you and this world. I have come to you. You don't have to get to me. You don't have to arrive at some level. You don't have, it's not based on performance. It's not based on what you can accomplish. It's not based on what you can know. It's not based on how successful you are in any form. It's based on the fullness of God coming in human form in Jesus Christ who has completed everything for you on your account. We call that grace. That becomes a whole different motivation. I don't have to be afraid of what people think. I don't have to be afraid if I measure up. I have the fullness of Jesus Christ for me. I can be grateful and respond in love. I don't have to try to keep a record of all the good things I do, because God keeps no record of my wrong. Isn't that amazing? What a different motivation. What a different response. So it <laughs> gives you a whole transformation about motivation. Secondly, it becomes a, a tremendous aid when we are facing suffering. Um, you don't need advice. You need good news, not good advice. So I know what I should be doing. You probably do too. You know, I should be eating better, exercising more, getting my sleep, loving people more, being nicer, not getting angry in traffic, 
That's really hard these days down here, isn't it? It's justified. Oh my gosh. Some of these drivers, I've seen people turning left out of the straight through lanes lately, haven't? It's like, what is going on? Anyways, um, you don't need advice. And especially when you're going through a difficult time and facing suffering. So when you're going through a difficult time, you know, if you pour out your heart to someone and say, oh my goodness, I can't believe I, this happened and that happened and I just, I blew it. I didn't do this and I got all, up, all this stuff. And that person goes like, well, you know. <laughs> You should. I shut down immediately, don't you? It's like that's the last person I need in my life right now is somebody telling me what I should and shouldn't do because I already know I blew it. Come on. But if you have someone who comes to you and listens and cares and loves and comes alongside of you and tries to, at best they can, to, to enter into your suffering, not necessarily that they say, oh, I've been there and I've done that, and then the whole focus is on me and what I've gone through, not what, you know. You think you've, oh, I, no, that's not it. But when you have someone who opens up and is vulnerable and understands and accepts all the struggles that you're facing, right, you've got someone who can truly comfort you. There is no religion in this world that says God suffers, but Christianity. And not that he just suffers a little or kind of can understand it, but that he has entered into it deliberately and completely and suffers everything. Now, it seems almost most religions would say that would contradict what it means to be God, that God could actually suffer. But Christianity states it's fundamentally what has happened when God became human in Jesus Christ. That means God became vulnerable, that God became limited. He limited himself in the person of Jesus Christ to endure this life as any other human being and to face exactly what we do. And Jesus goes through the worst so that he can come to you so close to you in suffering that he suffers with you. He weeps with you. He cares for you. He understands it's completely from the inside out. And he doesn't kind of shy away from anything that you've got on. That's what the incarnation does. It's a great poem by uh, Edward Shillitoe that kind of spells it out. I'm only going to share one verse of it, the last stanza. He writes, the other gods were strong, but thou wast weak. They rode but thou didst stumble to a throne. But to our wounds, only God's wounds can speak. And not a God has wounds, but thou alone. That's probably enough right there for any sermon to say, woo, that's good. OK, we can go on now. But there's even one more step. And that is that the incarnation gives us tremendous motivation for peace and justice in this world. You see, if Jesus Christ came human body, He's basically affirming the goodness of this creation and the goodness of your life and everything that makes you human. And that Christ's salvation is not just 
uh, forgiveness of sins, but God is planning on redeeming the entire world. It's not an escape from the material world, but an actually redemption and resurrection and renewal of this whole creation. So not only is forgiveness of sin and salvation the goal of Christianity, but salvation includes fighting disease and poverty and injustices and war. Christians are to be fully gauged in serving this world, trying to make this a better place. All these things are a result of our God who loves this world and will renew this world one day. So we don't leave. We don't kind of go like just hold off to ourselves. We fully involved in this world. So that's what it means to present Jesus here at the beginning, who he is and the difference it makes. Now, the next two points are much shorter. Where does he meet you? Discovering Jesus, where does he meet you? What is the scene that came in this first, you know, the Son of God, and all of a sudden we're out in the wilderness? When you think of wilderness, you know, I think of national parks. I just love going to Yosemite and seeing the waterfalls and the mountains and the beauty. And of course, the amenities have to be there, right? Um, you think uh, um, maybe of streams and for Wilderness, though, where Jesus was, where John was, where the opening scene is in this, is not a wonderful national park. It is the desert. It is a place of thorns and thistles and loneliness and emptiness where life is tenuous. It's fascinating. Um, I learned a few years ago that the Hebrew word for wilderness is midbar. And it's actually a combination of two things, mi being the, a, a suffix for nothing or no, and dabar is the word for word. And wilderness is the wordless place, the place that goes beyond description, beyond my human words to understand it. It's where I'm at loss, where my life falls apart, where things just seem chaotic. It's the opposite of the garden where God spoke and gave beautiful life for Adam and Eve. Now Jesus is in the wilderness and will be sent out into the wilderness where the only thing that will sustain him after his baptism in the next few verses of Mark is um, the word of God, not his own words. God meets you where you have nothing to say for yourself anymore. You know, so often people uh, uh, decide, you know, I better get a little religion in my life and I've got to add it in and kind of add in all this stuff and do this and do that. So maybe I'll get my act together and go to church. And, and maybe that's how we start out. But we often, we're going to get to a point where we realize Everything I can say and everything I can do is a loss, and I have to be utterly dependent on God. That's what Christianity proclaims, and here the wilderness is an example of that. And John himself is basically reenacting, creating God's people again out of the wilderness. He's out in the wilderness, and it says that he is baptizing them for a baptism of repentance. Isn't that fascinating? And you read over, oh, that's nice, baptism, that's a great thing. Until you realize this is the first time this is happening ever this way. Oh, sure, there were washings. There are purification rites. 
the children of Israel and other people thought, you know, I've got to purify myself. I have to wash my hands before I can actually pray. I have to have certain washings in order to enter into the temple. The priests had to cleanse themselves outwardly as a ritual sign of an inward cleansing of heart and life. They had those. And those who were outside Gentiles who wanted to become part of the Jewish family, proselytes, they also needed to be baptized. They'd pour water over themselves or immerse themselves in order to confess that they were now leaving an old life behind and joining in with the monotheistic religion of Ju Judaism. Okay? But John says, we're out in the wilderness. We're starting over. And guess what? He baptizes Jews and Gentiles, whole of Judea, as if they were Gentiles, as if no one is the people of God. And instead of doing it to themselves, you have to receive it. John baptizes. You don't get to do it yourself. Christianity is not a self-help religion. And baptism is one of those things that is done to you, not you do yourself. You know, that was one of the great arguments that Jesus had. Um, and it was kind of, we read it and think it's just a nice dialogue, but it was more or less an argument between him and Nicodemus at night in the Gospel of John 3. And Nicodemus is trying to figure it all out. He thinks he's got his act together. And Jesus says, you've got to be born of water and spirit. You've got to be born again. And Nicodemus is going like, okay, now how am I going to do that? And the whole point is, it's impossible. It has to be done to you. You can't do it, Nicodemus. You're trying to create a self-made, self-improvement religion. There is no such thing. Either God does it for you, God does it to you, you receive it, or you don't get it. That's the wilderness. The whole point of a wilderness baptism is that I have nothing. I am absolutely, utterly in a wilderness dependent on God. And I think almost any person who is a uh, person that follows Jesus, at some point in your life, you're going to get to the end of your abilities. You're going to have to let go. You're going to have to say, I have nothing. I don't even have words to say right now. And to receive the gift that he is. Now, Paul theologizes about this again. He does so in Ephesians chapter 2. He says, as for you, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. That's our condition out in the wilderness. And then later on he says, but God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love, which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace we have been saved. We come back to grace again. God meets you at the end of yourself in the wilderness, and he gives you his word when you have no words. And finally, the cross of Jesus, where we're going, where he's going. Now, you might go like, where's this cross? I don't see anything about the cross in this text. We're at the beginning of the Gospel of Mark, but he did say, um, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight his paths. And what is the way of the Lord is the question that is being asked from the beginning to the end. Now, 
often in the Near Eastern, um, Middle Eastern world at this time and for centuries before, um, when a king would come with his entourage to a town, they would try to make straight the path and take out every valley, every rubble, anything that was an obstacle in the way. And you know what that entailed for the city? A lot of slave labor. You know? Is that how Jesus is? Kind of a king who comes that you have to prepare the way in order to make it easy on him? The rest of the gospel we will see. Jesus is simply not that kind of a king. Ever. He doesn't come to be served, but to serve, he will say. He owns nothing. He owns the entire universe, and yet himself personally owns not a piece of property and hardly anything. The world was made by him and for him, and yet he claims nothing of his own. He's baptized by John and sent into the wilderness. We'll talk about that more next week. And from the beginning, he's headed in a whole different direction than any other king. Because the direction he is facing from that baptism on, where the cross is basically placed on him as the servant and as a king, is that he is not going to a throne in a palace, but to a throne of wood. And, what we, and, and the cross itself is kind of the opposite of a royal throne. You know, a royal throne is a sense of power, of dignity, of honor, you know, of wealth. The cross, <laughs> place of weakness, humiliation. In fact, a person who is crucified has not even the dignity of death given to him or her. You are stripped naked and exposed for all the world to ridicule you in your last moments. And there Jesus enters the wordless place, the wilderness, the howling abandonment of having nothing so that he could give you everything. God taking human form and from the beginning going to that cross for you. You know what's amazing is that Mark gives us simply Jesus that you might not, you go like, wow, I just read this text. I would have just read right through it. He's presenting something so profound. First century uh, people would look at it and just be amazed and blown away by these simple verses because it would never have been heard of before. How do you respond to just this simple proclamation of who Jesus is, what he's doing, and where he's going? Huh? I love um, John Stott wrote a book called Basic Christianity, and in it, he uh, shares how people in Jesus' own time responded to him. He says, if you read the Bible, you'll see nobody ever met Jesus Christ, ever had a moderate reaction to him. They didn't go like, wow, that was nice. He's so sweet. You don't see that with Jesus. There are only three reactions. They either hated him and wanted to kill him. They were afraid of him and wanted to run away, or they were absolutely smitten with him. They tried to give their whole lives to him. I understand all three reactions. I probably had them all. But finally, yeah, the reaction of realizing, even when I hated you, Lord, 
Even when I didn't want you in my life, you still came to me. Even when I ran away, afraid, you came after me. What can I do but be smitten by your love and give my life to you? Simply Jesus. He simply means everything. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for this day, for this time gathered together for uh, the beginning of this gospel. <laughs> Lord, we want to focus on you over the next few weeks and just follow along with you, with your disciples, be amazed at you, astounded by you, afraid of you, um, un, uh, just questioning and yet at the same time in wonder and awe and praise. Thank you, Lord, for this day. Thank you for everyone who is here, Lord, as we begin this journey together. I pray, Lord God, you would also, um, we are just heartbroken at seeing in, a, in the news the, the war in Ukraine and the violence and the injustices, Lord, and the, Lord God, um, we ask for you to intervene. We know that you hurt and you feel it and you understand. We thank you for your people. And we pray, Lord God, that you would protect and guard and guide and bring peace and justice. And whatever we can do individually and corporately, Lord, to bring more peace and justice in this world, Lord, help us. Give us that wisdom and empower us to do it. But we need you to intervene. Lord, we lift up all those who need your healing touch. We lift up anyone here who is suffering or struggling right now, Lord God. We pray that you would open us as members at Thrive, members to one another, that we can be open and vulnerable with each other, to listen, to lift up, to encourage, to pray, that we wouldn't be advice givers, but just truly servants to one another in the way that you have served us, Lord God. And help us to present you, Jesus, simply, profoundly, completely, not ourselves. Lord God, as we enter into a time now of communion in just a few moments, as we enter into a time of thanksgiving and give of ourselves and our time and talents, Lord, and our treasures and our offering, Lord God, we want to respond with just profound um, amazement at how great you are in our lives. We ask that you would forgive any uh, our sins, our failures, our, the obstacles in our way that would impede your work in our lives, that you would create in us a new heart and a new spirit so that we can move out, Lord, to live for you. Forgive us, Lord, renew us and lead us to delight in your will and ways. So bless uh, the offering this morning, and we not just give money, but our lives to you. And bless the time where we receive your gifts, the gifts of your love and truth and personal presence, Lord, in communion. All this we pray, Lord Jesus, in your precious name. Amen.